0: It's always a joy to worship with you guys. Uh, you know, yesterday as I was watching the Dodgers game, I was really hoping for a win because I know, like, Sunday would be very depressing if they lost. Uh, but from the noise of just greeting each other, uh, yeah, it's, it's awesome that, you know, we're going back to the World Series. And now I can say we. Uh, I, I think I'm becoming an L.A.er, uh, and so praise God for that. <laughs> Um, we're going to continue in our worship. So if you guys can open up your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we took a break for about a month, and now we're going to jump back in. And, uh, you know, Pastor Mike, um, the last time we were in Mark was a very difficult passage. And today we have another very challenging uh, passage that I wrestled with uh, this week. Uh, I lost sleep over. Um, but I think it's a very important uh, word that Christ has for us. Uh, and so what we're going to see in Mark chapter 10, so you can turn there. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, so if you have your apps, you guys can flip to that version. Uh, but it's going to shoot up on the PowerPoint for you guys to follow along. Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. Uh, we see another standoff between Jesus and his opponents. Um, the Pharisees are setting, a, trying to set a trap <laughs> for Jesus. And uh, Jesus knowingly walks into this trap, but ends up kind of flipping it on the Pharisees. He ends up schooling them at their own game. And so let's look at what the issue uh, is and the topic is in which the Pharisees were trying to set this trap for Jesus. So let's give our full attention as I read God's word. Once again, Mark 10, 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, and he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is is it What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Uh, This is God's word. Amen. Now, how is this question about divorce setting a trap for Jesus? It seems like a very simple test. Uh, especially when it comes to divorce, like Jesus would know uh, the proper answer. Uh, but this issue of divorce, uh, we have to look a little bit deeper and, and know the context in which this question was being asked. And the location of where Jesus is right now will give us a hint on why this was a trap set up for Jesus. Because uh, in the region that Jesus was doing ministry, it was under the jurisdiction of Herod, uh, Herod Antipas, right? That was his name. He was a ruler of the region where Jesus conducted his ministry, and Antipas married his brother's ex-wife. His brother's name was Philip. Uh, She got a divorce with Philip, and Antipas married his brother's ex-wife. Now, why is this significant? Because a few few chapters back, it's recorded that John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod Antipas because he called out Herod on this unlawfully... uh, uh, union between uh, Philip's ex-wife and himself. And so John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus' his ministry, got killed because he called Herod out because of this divorce, marrying a divorced uh, woman. And so this is indeed a tra- trap because if Jesus' answer says, yes, it is unlawful to divorce, he would experience the same fate. Uh, Herod would seek out Jesus and probably want to behead him as well. And so this was a strategic plot by the religious rulers to trap Jesus, to get rid of him. But another reason why this was a test was that Jews, the Jewish tradition overall, had a very loose position on divorce. Uh, It was very lenient. It was a loose policy. And knowing that Jesus might have a different view would then discredit his authority. So, this was another way of trapping Jesus. Because the Pharisees had a very loose policy when it came to divorce, knowing that Jesus might have a different response. If Jesus publicly says that it is, un, it is unlawful for, uh, for divorce, then it will discredit his ministry. And so, knowing Jesus' agenda, they set up this trap. And Jesus, knowing their agenda, he sets up his own trap. And in this standoff about divorce, Jesus exposes the religious leaders and at the same time reveals the true purpose of marriage. So two main ideas regarding marriage for us today. First, is the distortion of marriage, and secondly, the design of marriage. The distortion and the design. So first, the distortion of marriage. See, in the Jewish culture and faith, there was the written law, the Torah, but in addition to the written law, we, they had the oral traditions called the Mishnah. And both, and this was a problem in, in their culture, they held the written law and the Mishnah equal in weight and authority. The written law is the Ten Commandments, it's is the first five books of the Bible, so that's the written law, but they had their oral traditions. And so we have to look into what the oral tradition says about divorce. Now, I'm going to share some of those, I'm going to share three ideas about divorce that is in the oral tradition. First, from the school of Shammai. A man may, may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her, for it is written because he had found in her indecency in anything. Right? So the, the, the justification for divorce is if the woman was unfaithful. But the school of Hillel says this, He may divorce even if she spoiled a dish for him, for it is written because he had found indec- in her indec- indecency in anything. Now we're going to read one more. Rabbi Akiva says, "And I shall be, and it shall be, if she finds no favor in his eyes." Now, if you look at these the oral traditions, the progression it kind of loosens. The justification and the grounds for divorce constantly loosens, uh, and it's, it's pretty absurd. If she spoils a dish, that means she's indecent, and he's able to divorce his wife. And the last one was just, it's just crazy. And it shall be if she finds no favor in his eyes. So if Jane lost favor in my eyes, just for whatever reason, I could divorce her. If she messes up cooking a dish and it tastes over, over, overly salted, like, you know what? I can divorce you. It's pretty absurd. And, and, and the, the Pharisees had a very loose policy. And they wanted to keep it that way. Now, when we hear this, we're like, man, that's so crazy and so absurd. How can they ask for a divorce if, they mess, if my wife messes up a dish? Now, we have to remember at this time that this was a male-dominant culture. Uh, it was a patriarchal society where precedent was given and priority was given to men. Women and children were considered second class in this culture. And so we have to take that into consideration. But also, in first century Palestine, we have to understand what their chief purpose of marriage was. It was for the establishment and the continuance of family. That's why they were so obsessed with children, especially having sons. If you look at the Old Testament and New Testament, you, you just see the shame and the guilt of barrenness, not having, not having the ability to have children. So their chief purpose was, I need to continue my family line. And so children are very important for that, and marriage affords me that privilege of continuing my family line. And so because of culture and tradition, the Pharisees created a pro-divorce system that made divorce very easy and permissible for men. And so marriage, according to the Pharisees, was a disposable contract, and they wanted to keep it that way. And so in this question of divorce, we get the distortion of marriage. It's exposed in their pro-divorce system. See, men were the priority. It was for the men's status. It It was to continue their family line. Marriage was primarily for their pleasure. And any failure of the wife, marriage can be disposed of. This is a distortion of marriage. Uh, and this may sound a little bit familiar, being from an Eastern culture, as many of us are, are, are from. Uh, and I was raised in a very traditional, very Korean household. I, I grew up with my grandparents. My father is the youngest of five and the only son. Uh, so he had four older sisters, and, and my grandparents wanted a son so desperately. Uh, and you can tell because they had five. Uh, and my dad was the golden child. Now, I, come af- uh, I have an older sister and a younger brother. Now, what happened when my sister was born, my grandfather was disgusted with my mom and my sister. Uh, and this was just very Korean. Uh, and then when I came, I was the golden child, this, the first son of the only son. And then my brother was an extra blessing. Uh, and so this was the, the, the context in which I grew up, and my sister and my mom, even till this day, there are pain, there's pain and scars. that They're still trying to work through because of the disdain that my grandfather had because of my sister. And so, you know, I, I don't think the story is, is totally far-fetched. I think many of us may understand uh, the culture and traditions that we, are, uh, we, we grow up in that can be so dysfunctional and, and, and cause so much pain. And so now, before we are hasty in criticizing, right, the first century Palestinian culture and condemning these traditions, and I, I don't want to villainize tradition and culture because there are a lot of good things that happen, but at the same time, there's a lot of sinful things that happen because of culture and tra- tradition. But before we go ahead and criticize, uh, you know, Jesus' day, we have to pause and think about our own culture because there is still a twisting and a redefinition of marriage that happens today. And I want to say it's even more prevalent. Distortions are even more prevalent in our culture and day than in Jesus' day. The issues of same-sex marriage, cohabitation, couples living together, not getting married. And the reasons why couples get divorced today reveals that distortions are still very much playing a part in our lives. So if the Eastern culture right, idolized family, this kind of collectivist idea, the Western culture then has a different type of distortion. It's a distortion nonetheless. It's an individualistic distortion of marriage. So if I can summarize what I think, my assessment of our culture and the distortion of marriage in our culture is this. Marriage exists for my personal pleasure and happiness. And at first you're like, how is that a distortion? (laughs) That's a distortion. Marriage exists... The chief purpose of marriage is for my personal pleasure and happiness. And we could define happiness in, in various different ways. It comes in all sh- different shapes and forms. Right? For some of us, validating my worth makes me happy. And because in Asian culture, not to get married is a little bit shameful, so I want to validate my worth by getting married. And that makes me happy. Making my parents makes me happy. And so I seek out a, a, a mate to marry so I can get my parents off my back. And I want to make them happy. Comfort makes me happy. Dual income, yes, dual income. More comforts, more things that we can buy with two incomes rather than one. Sex makes me happy. And so I want to find a compatible partner. And so I'm going to test it out before I actually get married. Children make me happy. And marriage affords us children. Having a companion makes me happy. I don't want to be alone. See, happiness comes, comes in, in so many different shapes and forms. But if that's the primary goal of marriage for us, that is a distortion. See, I've known women that had a list of 100 things that they want to see. Literally, I, they showed it to me. 100 things that they wanted to see in their future spouse. And I was just like, good luck. First of all, but, but how many of those qualities do you possess? I just wanted to ask that. I'm like, that's just, just absurd. That's crazy. And they're like, I'm praying to God for this man. Like, again, good luck with that. Um, but again, none of these things are inherently bad. None of these things are inherently bad. Dual income's awesome. Children are awesome. Comfort is... is, is God, that is a blessing that God gives to us. But when it becomes a chief purpose in us pursuing marriage, we have made this, uh, marriage into something that was never meant to be. There's so a question I want to ask us this morning is, do we have a distorted view of marriage? Whether you are single, whether you're married right now, ask yourself this, do you have a distorted view of your own marriage or even the prospect of marriage? Is marriage all about me, myself, and I? So here, in the system that the the, the Pharisees created, exposes their distortion of marriage. And then he teaches them the true purpose of marriage. This leads us to the second point, the design of marriage. In a classic Jesus-like fashion, he responds to the question with a question. Verse verse 3, he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And so the pa- the passage that the Pharisees decided to choose was Deuteronomy 24.1. This is what Deuteronomy 24.1 says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of, her, out of his house, and she departs out of his house. Now they accurately quote Moses. But notice how Jesus responds in verse 5. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. They didn't understand the point of this passage. They quoted Moses, but they didn't understand Moses. This mosaic provision was made for the contingency of divorce, the possibility of it, but didn't offer whether the reasons were right or wrong. Right? So so divorce is going to happen so he's, gonna, he's writing a contingency, not, not giving it a, a moral value to that divorce. Now, this is a classic example of what happens when you take one passage and you create a whole system of laws around it. This is, this is dangerous, right? You just take one single passage and you don't uh, put it against the whole backdrop of Scripture and you create a whole system of laws. And that's what the Pharisees did. See, the main idea behind Deuteronomy 24 was to protect the rights of the woman that is getting divorced. That is why a certificate is written to verify that she is now released. And it gives her the possibility to remarry. That's the whole point of Deuteronomy 24.1. Not to give justification for uh, divorce, but once a woman gets divorced, let's protect her rights. Let's guard her. Let's make sure her life is not destroyed. It's to ensure the woman's reputation is is still intact. That's why Deuteronomy 24.1 was written, and that's why Moses gives them this law. See, Jesus is saying, you misunderstood the purpose of uh, Moses' law. It's not for justification for divorce, but it's to limit its worst consequence for the woman. And so there are many laws in Scripture trying to restrain the effects of sin, but never gave permission for it. Now, that's very important for us to understand. It's trying to restrict the effects of sin, these laws, but it never gave us permission to sin. And that is the grace of God. The Pharisees were more interested in the loopholes in getting out of marriage than understanding the intention and the design of marriage. And so Jesus takes the Pharisees where they should have gone, he takes the Pharisees to another passage of Moses and he goes back to Genesis, right? He goes back to Genesis, verse six. But from the beginning of creation, God made a male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus reminds them of God's original design for marriage. And so we see the contrast between the Pharisees and Jesus. The Pharisees came from a pro-divorce agenda, and Jesus responds with a pro-marriage argument. This is why God gave us marriage. And so here it is. God created the institute of marriage. He's the creator of it. He instituted it. And God is the one who gave away the first bride. And he created the pattern For marriage, the leaving of the family and cleaving to the wife. And God is the one who makes two flesh into one. This profound, mysterious union, God is the creator of that. And that is talking about sex, right? But not only that, a deep union, right, between male and female. So by quoting Genesis, what Jesus is here is doing is reminding the Pharisees the inherent value and dignity of both male and female. Again, in a patriarchal society, male dominant, privilege to the male, value is given to the male. What Jesus is doing here is reminding, no, male and female were created in the image of God. Both. Both are equal in dignity, value, and worth. Actually, the first mention of something not being good was man being alone. And so God created a helper fit for Adam, and so he created Eve. Now, this idea of helper, I know women don't like this idea of a helper, but you understand that helper is another, another word that's used to actually describe God in the Old Testament. So it's not, it's not a title of inferiority. It's actually a title of value, of complementary, Like, it's it's complement to men, male and female, both equal in dignity, worth, and value. So Jesus is challenging the very patriarchal, male-dominant system of of his day. See, marriage is from God, through God, and ultimately for God. Marriage was designed to glorify God. And so because marriage belongs to God, the decision to divorce does not belong to man. See, this profound union between male and female tells us something about who our God is. It tells us who he is. He is three in one, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Different in role and function, all three God, but yet uniquely one. Right Diversity, but yet there's unity. So male and female reflects God's diversity. And in marriage, it reflects God's intimate and profound unity. But there's another thing. Another, within the design of marriage, it points us to another union, a greater union. And that is between Jesus and his bride, the church, us. Ephesians 5, 31-33. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, this is Genesis that Paul is talking about. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Marriage is about Jesus and the church. Marriage wasn't originally designed for my comfort, my pleasure, my validation, appeasing my parents, the prospect of a dual income, or even companionship. Although those things are blessings that marriage offers, that is not its chief purpose. Marriage was designed to glorify Jesus, to tell the world something about Jesus, and it is this, that Jesus loves his bride, the church. It is an undying, unwavering commitment to the church. And because Jesus doesn't divorce his bride, we too shouldn't. Now, there are two biblical grounds of divorce, and that is adultery and abandonment. I'm not going to indulge us in explaining those things because that's not the point here, again. Jesus does not indulge the Pharisees in the idea of divorce, so I too will not. But if you want to know more about it, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. So Jesus is the ultimate example for marriage. If that's the case, then there should be a recalibration, a reorientation in our posture and attitude to the prospect of marriage and in our current marriage. If Jesus is the ultimate model, then that should call, that, that should make us kind of think and reassess our attitude towards marriage. Right? Because there's a temptation that many of us we have, especially married couples, how do we gauge the health of our marriage? You start looking at other couples. You start looking at other couples. Oh, you know what? We don't fight as much as that couple. We're good, right? We don't argue like them. We don't bicker like them. You know, we're, we're actually more loving than them. And then you start feeling good about your marriage. That's a horrible system, guys. You should always be able to find a couple that you're better than. That is not the, that is not the model that we should be looking to. It's Christ and His church. And that challenges me so much of my love for my, my wife. So the question that we need, we need, we need to take this a little bit further. So if the design, is be, the design of marriage, right, is God's design, and the ultimate model is between Jesus and the church, we have to look into that marriage, that union between Jesus and the church a little bit more, and ask the question, what makes that work? What makes that marriage so much greater and more profound than anything that we can experience here on this earth, right? Because we want to take our cues from Jesus and his bride. So what holds that marriage together? And the answer to that question, brothers and sisters, please listen carefully, answer to that question will allow us to experience a healthy marriage in this lifetime. So what is it? I'll give you a hint. It's not feels, and it's not romantic love. Although that's helpful, right, it's not comfort, it's not a dual income. It's not pleasure. It's none of those things. None of those things holds this union between Christ and the church together. If anything, if anything, we had nothing to offer Jesus. Right? The Bible tells us that we were bankrupt. We were in debt. So for Jesus to marry us was a financial. It's irresponsible for Jesus to marry us. We had nothing to offer. Not only that, the Bible tells us that we're adulterers. We're cheaters. We're unfaithful. We worship all sorts of different gods, and, and we give ourselves to lesser lovers in this world. There's nothing within us that makes us a, a good candidate for Jesus to say, you know what, I want to marry you. No, he should have ran the other way. Run away, Jesus. We're not good for you. What? How do we explain this? How do we explain this this deep, intimate union that Jesus has with the church? See, Christ's love and his commitment to us is despite us. It's despite us. So what explains this union? One word, covenant. 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 Covenant is an oath-bound relationship we are, we are bound to Jesus because of covenant. Not a covenant that we wanted to make, but a covenant that God wanted to make with us. To say that I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people, and nothing in this world is going to stop me from keeping my promise. Covenant. The union between Christ and the church is a covenantal love. And nothing can break that union because God never fails, right? He, he never goes back on his promise. And that is why in marriage ceremonies, we see couples making these crazy vows and these crazy commitments, right? Sickness and health, richer, poorer, to death do us part. And it is to reflect this kind of covenant making that God does with us. So what does it mean for our marriage? How can we take our cues from Christ and the church? Listen very carefully, right? Marriage is not about staying in love. Marriage is about keeping covenant. That's what we learn from Jesus' love and his undying commitment to the church. It's not about staying in love. That's great, but that's not his primary. That's not... The, the primary aim is staying in love. No, it's about keeping covenant. Keeping covenant. And so then love becomes more of an action than a feeling based on the commitment that we made to one another. And we are to reflect this type of love that is an action rather than a feeling in marriage. See, as, as fickle creatures, we can't, we, we fall in and out of love. Right? There's some days I. I I love Jane so much, and there's some days I'm like, I don't want to look at you. Just honest. I'm just being honest. So then, is it okay then for me to divorce my wife because of how I feel? No, there's got to be a stronger bond to our marriage, and that is the covenant that we made to each other. But in every marriage, there is another witness, and God is a witness. He is there witnessing us. Making these covenant vows. So if keeping covenant reflects Christ's covenant-keeping grace with his church, divorce then paints an inaccurate picture of Christ. Because Christ would never leave his ride. And this is why divorce is detrimental to the image of God and the glory of God. To close, a, a few words of encouragement and application because we talked about the distortion. We talked about the design. And I want to I close with just a few words of encouragement because I know divorce is devastating. It has massive ripple effects in, in all facets of our lives. Uh, there are probably many here still confused and frustrated, so many questions unanswered because of what you witnessed in your parents' Uh, The pain is still there, and and it, it feels like an unremovable stain in your life. And I just want to say that God's grace is abundant for you. There is forgiveness that you can offer in the gospel by looking to Christ. Whether you are active in the divorce or whether you are just passive observers and just witnesses to it, that there is grace and I want to encourage you, if, if there is pain within you and scars within you, don't deal with that yourself. Uh, talk to someone about it. Talk to any one of our pastors or the leadership or the deacons of our church, and we'd love to pray with you. And there are programs like Imago Day, uh, Inner Healing. Uh, there's, there's community groups. There's, there's different places that you can go to, just to share your burden. With another individual. And we want to be a place, ANCC wants to be a place where pain and hurt can be processed in and through the gospel. And so I know that there are many of us still hurting because of that. See, the distortions of marriage will ultimately lead to the demise of marriage. By looking to Christ and the church, in that union, it can produce a deeper bond and a stronger devotion. To our spouse see marriage is one of the main areas in which we are formed as disciples of christ because our spouse has a way of exposing all our idols right isn't that true our spouse has a way of exposing the deepest idols and our deepest sins more than anyone else but at the same time we can experience profound grace by reminding each other of the gospel of grace The most opportunities that we have in rehearsing the gospel is in marriage, especially when there's conflict, especially when there is sin. But how are we going to do this? How how are we going to rehearse the gospel when you're in the thick of conflict and, and, and fighting against each other? How are we going to do this? It's only by looking to Christ. Only by looking to Christ. See, marriage is very hard and difficult. I'll be the first one to admit that. Uh, even after eight years and after three children, every month, like every week, it's, it's a struggle. It is. I just want to say, if you're, if you're struggling in marriage right now, uh, don't get to the point of bringing up the word divorce. Do something now. There are counselors that you can see. There are church pastors that are available for you to talk to. Don't try and do this yourself. You can't. Um, you can't. We've got to do a lot of preventative work before we get to that word. And so I just want to urge you, if you're struggling in your marriage and you feel by yourself and your spouse isn't here because you just got in a fight, please come and talk to one of the pastors and we'll love to pray with you. And we have a bunch of counselors. I went, I went to marriage counseling. There are counselors that we can go and see and get help. See, in moments of marital har- hardship, we need to, again, look at the grace of Christ. John Piper has this amazing phrase that I love, and this is something that practically we can take away. He says this one thing, bending grace from the vertical to the horizontal. Oh, I love that. Bending grace from the vertical to the horizontal, meaning that the flow of grace happens vertically. Yes, God is the one. His, His source is unlimited. He has an unlimited uh, source of grace that he wants to give to you. But then we could take that grace and bend it horizontally to one another. And that's, that's, that's what we need. We can't do it just horizontally. We need a constant flow of grace. And then we could bend that to our spouse, especially when we're in conflict. Christ, he left his father to cleave to us. (laughs) He sacrificed himself on the cross for unfaithful sinners like us, and by his blood, he made us his bride. He gave us his righteousness, and by grace, we are intimately united to him, inseparable. We can experience his grace today, tomorrow, and forevermore. May that transforming grace sustain and strengthen your marriage and your future marriage for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you so much for the profound union that we get experienced experience because of the gospel. We, we were the worst prospects for you to, to marry, but in your goodness and in your love, you sent Jesus Christ who left, his glo- who left his throne, who condescended to dwell amongst us then to give his life for us to make us, to make us a fitting bride. God, this, this grace is, is unfathomable. It, I can't wrap my mind around it, but yet it is true. Help us to always look to you. Help us to look to you to, to, to draw from the, the, the reservoir of grace that never runs dry. Whether we're engaged or in relationships or whether we're 15, 20 years in marriage, God, I ask that you, your grace would be present and sufficient for us. That we can put Christ on display of his covenant-keeping love and grace through our marriage Father may you be glorified may you be glorified today and for couples struggling God I ask for your grace and mercy I pray for the gospel to be rehearsed right now in our own lives and then it can be translated and applied in our marriages God we thank you As we worship and respond and worship, me. you receive all the glory, honor, and praise. It's in Jesus' name.